0: Hey, Betsy, come on in. I won't always do that, but since I saw Betsy, (laughs) pray with me if you will. Lord, uphold me that I might glorify thee. Amen. As Alan has mentioned for the last couple of weeks, we're preaching from the lectionary in this service this fall... And one of the things I like most about using the lectionary is that it gives you multiple texts for every day. And we've talked about how that sometimes gives you a text that's a little bit tricky, (laughs) a little bit difficult. A text you might not go to and choose to use if you were choosing what you would preach. One of the other things I like is reading lectionary texts together. They aren't always texts that you would put together, but because they're assigned to the same day, you read them together. And I often find that I'm surprised by the deeper, richer reading that comes from reading them back to back. Two of the texts for today are like that. One is from Mark's Gospel, and the other is from the book of James. I'm going to read them both. And I invite you to listen for two red threads that connect these passages. First, both are concerned with knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. And second, read together, they offer us a lesson about how we can come closer to the kind of wisdom that is pure and good. The first passage from Mark comes just after Jesus has healed a boy with an unclean spirit, to give it some context. Hear now the word of the Lord from Mark's Gospel. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. This is Jesus and his disciples. Jesus did not want anyone to know it. There's a first appearance of the theme of knowledge. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they, the disciples, did not understand what he was saying. There's a second appearance of our theme. And the disciples were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, Jesus asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Turning to our second reading from the book of James, we find that the writer of this letter, who might have been James, brother of Jesus, but we don't know for sure, starts right out with the subject of wisdom. The writer asks, Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness, born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts you do not have. ...because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly... ...in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This again is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do you see what I mean? If we were just picking up our Bibles... ...we might not turn immediately to Mark and then go straight to the book of James. We might not often go to the book of James at all, if we're honest, right? But these two texts overlap, don't they? Let's look first at what they say about knowledge and wisdom. Excuse me. In Mark's gospel, we catch a glimpse of a very human moment, even an argument, among the disciples that I think is really easily understood from our context today. Jesus the disciple's beloved leader and teacher, is telling them something fundamental about what is coming for him and for them. He's telling them about his coming death and resurrection. Those are, of course, at the heart of our identity as Christians, but when Jesus foretells them for his closest friends, they don't understand what he's saying. And in fact, this is the second time in Mark's gospel that Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection for the disciples, and they still don't get it. Now, hearing this news as one of the disciples would certainly be different from hearing it here in this room, from a biblical text that might be familiar 2,000 years after the prediction actually came true. But still, the disciples appear to be dumbfounded by this news. There's a professor from Wesley Seminary, Amy Odom, who says that this moment of confusion for the disciples is consistent with all of the book of Mark, that throughout Mark's Gospels, these are her words, not mine, the disciples are the knuckleheads who just don't get it. There's a gradual understanding that grows for them throughout the Gospels, but in this passage, the disciples don't yet get it. Now, as a modern reader of this story... I can't help but wonder, why didn't they just ask? They're with their teacher, someone they love and trust. They're supposed to be soaking up his every lesson. Surely they understand that he's just told them something important, but they let the moment pass without asking the hard questions they must have had. Killed? Did did Jesus just say he was going to be killed and raised again? but they don't ask anything because, as Mark tells us, they were afraid. Without putting too much weight on the particular thoughts and feelings of the disciples, because we can't really know what they were, I believe this is one of the moments that makes this text relatable for us. I bet every single person here has had the experience of thinking we were supposed to know something, supposed to understand something, that we just didn't. And rather than risking embarrassment or confessing that we didn't understand, we kept quiet. Will someone confess to not having had that experience? I know I've had that feeling. My first semester of law school in its entirety comes to mind. (laughs) The Socratic method heightens that experience. (laughs) But even though we've all experienced that, it still is somehow surprising hear that the disciples didn't understand something. Don't we expect that the ones who were closest to the Lord would be the most knowledgeable, would have some unique insight, some special connection that gave them understanding? And yet, as it turns out, throughout history, no one has wanted to look confused or uninformed. And in fact, in the very next verse, we learn that as the disciples journeyed onward, still in the dark, about what Jesus meant when he said he would be killed and raised again, they began to argue about who among them was the greatest. Surely that timing is no coincidence. I imagine that the disciples, like first-year law students, among others, were eager to appear to know everything they were supposed to know. No one wanted to be the one to ask Jesus the hard questions to seek an explanation about something they thought they should know. So instead, they started to posture among themselves, arguing about their own status. And here's a moment where reading two texts together makes them both richer. If we turn from the bickering disciples to today's passage from James, the writer's question seems perfectly appropriate. The disciples want to know which of them is the greatest and James's letter says, Who is wise and understanding among you? With the implied answer being, no one. Listen again to the passage from James. Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above but is earthly, unspiritual, and devilish. Now, I don't think we can know that the disciples had bitter envy in their hearts. That seems a little harsh. But we do find them in a moment of promoting themselves, of posturing for importance, engaging in conflicts and disputes, the same language James uses in his letter, even perhaps reflecting, and again the words of James, The cravings inside them, the recognition and status they seem to seek, are not the pure wisdom from heaven James describes. That kind of wisdom must be, we have this lovely list, pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. That doesn't sound like the bickering disciples, but it does sound pretty great, doesn't it? That's the kind of wisdom I imagine we would all love to have. So turning to our second question, how can such wisdom be achieved? Looking back to Mark, we see Jesus answering his disciples' argument. He called the twelve together and said to them, Whoever wants to be first, and they seem to all want to be first, since they're arguing about who is the greatest. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child, presumably there was a child there for some reason. I'm not sure what that's about. And put it among them and took it in his arms and said, whoever welcomes this child in my name, Welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me, God the Father. This language might be familiar. Does this ring a bell with you? This language about welcoming the children? We often hear these verses or the parallel ones from the other gospels in worship services that involve children or in moments of baptisms. And they're so lovely. They're so gentle and lovely. And they've often been interpreted in a lovely way. A lot of folks have said that this passage is an instruction to regain a childlike sense of wonder or an innocence or a gentleness. And all those things are fine. But this scene is actually much more radical than that. For Jesus to present a little child to the disciples and tell them to welcome that child in his name And to take on the characteristics of a child, to be last of all and servant of all, was a radical instruction. Even though children are not universally treated well in our day and age, God forgive us for that, our culture has a common notion that children are special, that they're more vulnerable than adults, that they need and require and deserve protection and care Nurture and love. Whitney Houston belted out our cultural notions about children in her song, The Greatest Love of All. I really want to sing this, but I'm just going to read it. If you, if you know the words, feel free to say them along with me. <laughs> I believe the children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. I know someone else knows this. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride to make it easier. You remember that song, don't you? You can see Whitney Houston at the Grammy Awards with the montage of children's faces being projected behind her, singing, belting in the way Whitney Houston had. You can hear that swell of music and feel the hope of an adoring audience carried on the backs of little children because they show so much pride. You can almost hear the better future coming. That's how our culture thinks of children. But this was not the attitude toward children in the first century. Children were not given special place or attention. Infant and child mortality rates were very high. Most babies didn't make it their first year. Half of them didn't live to be 10 years old. In the Roman Empire, the male head of a household, the paterfamilias, decided whether even to accept a baby into the household. And if he decided not to, the baby was exposed, left out in the elements to die. So children, far from having beauty inside, giving them a sense of pride, were understood as potential adults who didn't really have any value until they got past. ...their young childhoods. They had no status. No protection. No position. No recognition. Not a whole lot of worth. So Jesus is not telling his disciples... ...to be sweet like babies. But is telling them... ...to strip themselves... ...of all the trappings of status. To become powerless... ...and vulnerable. To make themselves like children last of all, and servant of all. It's a lot more radical than the notion that he's telling them to be wide-eyed, isn't it? And then Jesus continues, they're supposed to welcome the children, to show hospitality in Jesus' name to the powerless and the vulnerable, those without status or any greatness at all. I was in the bookstore today, and I saw a Tony Campolo book, that I will hopefully read sometime but didn't have time to read before coming here. I don't know what all is in it, but the title struck me for this message in these scriptures. The book is called Choose Love, Not Power. We live in a world that values power and status. The disciples' selfish ambitions, their tiff about who is the greatest, actually pales in comparison with the posturing for status we see all around us. In our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, among the parents at the PTA, that's one of the worst places, certainly in the news, politics. Everyone seems to be striving to be higher. So hearing from our Lord that we can only be first by choosing to be last is radical. And I think it's a hard instruction. We still live in this world. We cannot remove ourselves completely from our culture that perpetuates this race to be the greatest. So what are we to do? What does it mean to choose love, not power? I don't know what Tony Campolo says about it yet. But I'll submit to you three practices that we can change for ourselves and our families And actually, these are traits of children. Remember what the letter of James said about wisdom from heaven? That it is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield without a trace of hypocrisy. First, we can seek wisdom by choosing transparency. We can live without agenda or guile, as children do, at least when they're very young. And we can start with our relationships with God. How many of us, and don't raise your hands, how many of us, like the disciples, are afraid to ask hard questions? Are afraid that we will expose ourselves as something less than fully faithful if we admit that we don't understand something? Or we're afraid to express our hard emotions to God? How many of us even edit our prayers so that they sound a certain way? Well, friends, I'm here to tell you, and I didn't learn this until I was in seminary, our Lord can handle our honest thoughts, our honest emotions, our honest prayers, and our hardest questions. And if we take a posture of transparency in our relationship with God, the rest of our lives will become less about our own status and more about transparency, too. Second... We can forgive. How many of the power struggles swirling around us are based on grudges, resentment, lording something over someone, elevating oneself by having some dirt on somebody? Again, it is an election year. How important is it to us to be owed something, to have the upper hand? What if we abandoned that power And chose forgiveness. One of Joel's first cousins has an eight-year-old and a twelve year old, and they of course bicker and argue. Sometimes they're really great kids, but sometimes. We were with them this summer. I saw one of them tattle on the other. The tattler actually was not hurt or injured in any way. She was just telling the tale to get her brother in trouble. (laughs) That was her sole purpose. She wanted to show him that she had a little power over him because she had seen something he had done, and she just wanted him to know that she could get him in trouble. Joel's cousin, their mother, sat these two almost teenagers down, made them face each other, made them hold both of their hands together across their laps. They were sitting cross-legged, made them look into each other's eyes, (laughs) made them (laughs) confess to each other what they had each done wrong in that moment, and made them say, I forgive you, and I love you. Well, (laughs) the kids were mortified (laughs) at having to sit there and look at each other and hold hands, but it worked beautifully. Sitting together, looking at each other, they were on the same level. (laughs) And when they had to forgive each other, the power dynamic was gone, erased. And they got up and moved on, and the moment was over. I've tried it with our kids, and it really works. It's an excellent parenting tool. Now, I don't expect that we will see any public figures holding hands, looking into each other's eyes, offering their forgiveness anytime soon. But forgiveness, in big and small ways, has the power to clear away power struggles that are not bringing us closer to wisdom or God. And finally, we can welcome God's children. Jesus' instruction to the disciples was not just to give up their own power, but also to welcome the little children in his name. Little children were powerless and weak and poor in the first century. And the ones we welcome today may also be children who are powerless and weak and poor. But the ones we welcome may also be adults who are vulnerable They may be people in our own families, people in our communities who need to be upheld, who need to hear that they're loved, who need to be welcomed in Jesus' name. When we get honest with God, forgive wrongs, and turn our hearts and our time to showing someone else true welcome in Christ's name, I imagine we won't be thinking too much about whether we're the greatest. And we'll be thinking instead about the welcome of our Lord. I think it's worth a try. Don't you? Amen.